Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, May 29th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. While he's perhaps best known for the invention of the Segway, an electric self-balancing human transporter, Dean Kamen's got plenty of ideas up his sleeve. President Clinton awarded him the National Medal of Technology for his inventions that have advanced medical care worldwide, including a mobile dialysis system, the first insulin pump, and an all-terrain wheelchair called the iBot. Kamen holds more than 440 U.S. and foreign patents and is a huge advocate for science and technology. So huge, in fact, that 20 years ago, he started a program called FIRST to inspire high schoolers to become engineers and scientists. FIRST stands for For Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. This week, you'll hear Kamen talk about his incredibly successful program and how he hopes it will satisfy the growing demand for scientists with fresh new talent. Kamen gave this lecture at the Academy's Two Cultures in the 21st Century Symposium earlier this month. I'm here because I'm an inventor. What do inventors do? Inventors look at the same problems everybody else does and see them differently. I said, it's not the standard supply and demand. We have a problem. Let's go after supply. That's what capitalism teaches you. It doesn't work everywhere for all things. And I said, ultimately, maybe it's not a supply and demand problem. It's a demand and supply problem. Where's the demand? Learning is hard. And learning the ever larger amount of information out there in all the sciences is getting harder and harder. It's intimidating. Kids these days have less incentive and less guidance on average from parents. We don't live in the leave it to beaver generation where there's mom and dad, the two professionals every day home with the kids, reminding them that sports is a pastime, it's for entertainment, go do your homework. For lots of reasons, particularly in the large cities in the United States, most kids, particularly women and minorities, by the time they're 12, 12 or 13 years old, are entirely convinced, reasonably so, by the way, that scientists and engineers, that, that, that's not something they can do, nor should they want to. The world that's exciting out there, they see it on every billboard, in every magazine, on every TV show, the exciting world where you make money, you're young and healthy and happy. Every role model comes from one of two places, Hollywood or the world of sports, the NBA and the NFL. It's where the big money is, that's where the big careers are, that's where the happy people are, that's, that's where the demand is. And in a free culture, you get what you celebrate. That's why, despite they don't have the parquet floors, despite that they don't have the sod lawns, we keep getting all the great athletes out of the inner cities. Then we spend more money on the stuff they don't do, the stuff that, I mean, it, it's kind of bizarre if we really want to be scientists and engineers, collect the data, look at the data, analyze the data, and make decisions based on the data, not on what you wish the problem was. So I said, let's assume it's not about supply and demand. Let's look at the problem differently. And let's say we don't have an education problem at all in this country. Sure, it would be better if all the teachers were Nobel laureates, and sure, it would be better, better if we paid the average really good teacher more than we pay the guy that just got a $160 million contract for throwing rocks at sticks. But that's probably not going to happen. So what can we really do? We can assume it's not an education problem. We can assume that while there are probably some teachers that aren't great, there are some doctors that aren't great. 
There are some engineers that aren't great. There are some scientists that aren't great. There's loads and loads and loads of crummy lawyers that certainly aren't great. But our society moves on. Let's assume, and that's all I'm going to tell you about for the next 12 minutes, we'll redefine the problem as it's not an education problem, it's a culture problem, and it's not a supply problem, it's a demand problem. If we could create demand among all kids to convince them they could be part of an exciting world if they're willing to work hard at something besides bouncing a ball, it would be the biggest, I think, sea change you'd see. And if we could stop fighting about which of these things it is and stop blaming the education system and just say, no, it's a culture problem. It's not what we don't have enough of. It's what we have too much of in our culture. Obsessions with nonsense, distractions, and a perverted sense of what's important that literally is, in many cases, the only perspective that most kids see. So we said it's about demand and supply. We'll form an organization to create demand. Since the Olympics has five little things interconnected, I wanted slightly more sophisticated fundamental geometries. And since sports and entertainment are what obsess our culture, why not have science and technology put in a context that's going to compete with the Olympics or the Super Bowl, not the science fair. The science fair will be a great place to give advantage to the advantage to the kids that, for whatever reason, nurture or nature, parents. For the kids that are already wanting to go to science fairs, that's fine. It's the overwhelming percentage of all the rest of them that we need to appeal to in our culture. And since I've never seen kids cheering, I want to be second, I thought, first, it's sports. We all claim that kids don't want to be all that competitive in school. They want, you know, too much pressure on kids. You know, like they take math, pass, fail, don't need to take physics at all. Really? But only five kids get on the varsity football team or basketball team and a dozen kids get on the football team. Funny how we're willing to let them compete in things that somehow matter to them and sadly to most adults, but not in the things that will ultimately matter to their lives and our country. So let's not fight with the world of sports. Remember, I'm a guy that has to make stuff, do stuff. Okay, let's create a sporting event that will attract all kids, except the content will be valuable to their careers and their futures, even if they're not one of the best five ball bouncers. How do you do it? This is where all of you come in. I had this epiphany 18, 19 years ago and said, all you got to do is make sports the baseline, bring the cheerleaders, bring the school bands, all the trappings of sports, but put content in it. What could be simpler? The aha gotcha is There's no sport that little kids are going to play that they don't see world-class adults doing as their role models. That's why the science fair attracts the nerds on the nerd. You know, little kids in this country won't play a sport unless there's world-class people that they can emulate. Again, I'm an amateur at this. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. But little kids do what their older brothers and sisters do. There's a cricket shortage in the United States. There's a cricket shortage. We can solve it. I'm sure we can solve it. We've got to get billions of dollars we got to build a curriculum around cricket. Spend 20 years, get it at the federal level, state level, local level. Get the teachers to buy in. Then we need remedial cricket. That'll take maybe another 10 or 15 years. <laughs> then we got to get people to do it. Then we can, for a generation, complain that the teachers don't understand cricket because they never played. They're not good at teaching it. They were in the bottom 25% of their cricket class. <laughs> and then we can complain that the kids don't really want to show up early for school and they don't want to stay late and they don't want to work out all summer doing cricket because... Why do you do cricket? It's like, why you do algebra? It makes no sense to anybody. It wouldn't work. And I think you all know it wouldn't work. You want kids to play football or basketball or baseball? Oh, you got an NBA, you got an F- NFL, you got a World Series, you got a Super Bowl, problem solved. Every kid in this country 
wants to be good at that stuff. Because when they bounce that ball for 10 years from 7 to 17, they're not thinking about bouncing a ball. They're thinking about Shaquille O'Neal. Well, I couldn't make first work unless I had the Shaquille O'Neals. The trouble is when kids think about scientists and engineers, they not only don't think of young, healthy, attractive. A scientist and engineer, we all know. They're middle-aged, white, male, frizzy hair, German accent, sociopaths out to destroy the world. <laughs> this is a problem. And by the way, you guys in the press, you helped make it a good one. And, and that's really being cruel. I, I shouldn't say we never see scientists and engineers in the press. We sometimes do see them. Because if you never saw them, it would just be like benign neglect. We do see them, and if they're adults, they are middle-aged, white, male, sociopaths. But if they're young, they're squeaky, nerdy outcasts that nobody would ever want to be like or even associate with. And if it's a female version of it, it's certainly not the most attractive uh, woman in the show. And then we wonder why we get what we got. So first, 18 years ago, I said, if I could just get the scientists and engineers, the real innovators of the country, out in a format that is conducive to kids, have them work together, we could change kids' attitudes. And as a bunch of people pointed out, many scientists and engineers don't want to be teachers. They're probably not good teachers. And that's fine. Shaquille O'Neal may not be particularly good at teaching kids to play basketball, but he has way more impact on where they spend hundreds of millions of hours collectively a year than the United States Department of Education does. And, and, and everything about our culture favors the nonsense. I mean, everything. They, there's not a trick we didn't miss in shooting ourselves in the foot by taking science and engineering, we as scientists and engineers, putting ourselves in an ivory tower, being aloof. Somebody, I think, said that we were arrogant or obnoxious. You know, they give the Heisman Trophy every year. The press loves it. The public loves it. Kids love it. They give awards to people young at the beginning of their career. We're all anticipating who's going to get it. We participate in the picking it, and then it happens. That's sports. We all love it. Same with the Academy Awards. They spend two hours once a year kissing each other on the cheek, telling the world how wonderful they themselves are, and then they interrupt it with commercials by which they tell you how much more wonderful they are. And it's all about having the public see what they do because Hollywood wouldn't exist unless you were their fans. They need you. It's important. They'll spend whatever it takes to make themselves a hero. Those sports figures are nobody unless you idolize them. Meanwhile, the scientists and engineers are saying, I don't have time for that crap. I'm keeping the water clean. I'm keeping the lights on. I'm curing the diseases. I'm keeping the planes in the air. I'm fighting a losing battle on global issues. I don't have time for that. So to all of you, I give you an A plus as the scientific community. We do it so well, frankly, they mostly take it for granted. In fact, they get angry when the lights go out for 14 minutes per year. You know, we've got way better records than the guys that can get the ball in 70% of the time. You know, how would you like to fly home from this thing? Don't worry, I'm using that Boeing 750. The wings stay on that thing 84% of the time. <laughs> but, 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 but the science and engineering community is quietly in the background doing a job. We get an A+. Plus, but we get like a C- minus for affecting our culture and the attitudes of kids. Because, no, we have our awards too. We do, just like the Academy was. We have the Nobel Prize. Bunch of guys in Stockholm quietly, secretly think about who should get the award. Then they announce who's going to get it. And sometimes it's for somebody that did their great work 30 years ago. And they got the award because they did something so brilliant and so abstract, the average kid has no chance of understanding what they did. And then we announce it in a very quiet, dignified way to make sure that nobody in the general culture or media knows it happened. Anyway, so I figured, what are we going to do 
to put young, enthusiastic scientists in front of kids, particularly ones that happen to be women and Hispanic and minority, that are just as proud of doing what they do as what Shaquille does. So where do those people exist? If they don't exist, we are a banana republic. Just let's hang it up and stop whining and complaining. We got what we deserve. If we do have all those people, let's get them out. And we don't have to, as some of these people pointed out, turn them into teachers. Just have them, let them have fun doing what they know how to do because if they're really good at it and kids see the power of analytic thinking and the power of the tools of science and math and engineering, we'll change kids' attitudes. So in 1992... I went out to about 25 companies. I figured if, you know, Boeing and United Technologies and General Electric, if these guys don't have people to put in front of these kids, they don't exist. I asked them to get together and form teams. I told them I'm a little private company. I don't have an affiliation. You can't organize something. So I was down in Washington at the Council on Competitiveness. I said, you all go back. You go back to Seattle, Boeing. You go back to Texas, TI. Go find a school. Find a school where the kids have never met a scientist or an engineer. Go find a school where the teachers are trying to grapple with making this stuff relevant. You know, the gym teacher didn't have to make football exciting or basketball exciting. That's what media does. Go and find yourself a school where you could make a difference. Adopt the kids, and I'm going to give you a simple, easy way to put into the format that kids appreciate, high-intensity six-week season like the football season, It'll end with a double elimination tournament. It'll end with cheerleaders and school bands. It, 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 it won't be judgmental. It won't be in the classroom. By the way, the way we always justify sports, again, we're our own worst enemy. Well, the reason we can do all that sports stuff is they learn teamwork. Well, if teamwork is the justification, it's that important that they learn teamwork, then why, when they do it in the classroom, do we call it cheating? <laughs> and why is it that if they didn't get the math just right, we judgmentally give them a 57 and tell them they're dumb? But they strike out, ah, it was a lucky catch. He would. We put a lot of luck in sports. If you don't think there's luck in sports, why do we need to play seven games at the World Series? If you beat me, you beat me. You're better than I am, right? If I beat you, I'm, because we know there's luck in sports. It's the place to hide your ego. It's the reason that kids can try hard and hard and hard, and if they don't do well, they can come back. Why do all these wonderful things work? Coach is a nurturing term, teacher I said, we're going to take all the positive trappings of sports, package them up, and put intense science, technology, and math in the middle of it, and we'll see what happens. I convinced, as I said, it was a pretty small group, 23 companies in 1992, to come take their kits. They all flew in. Talk about commitment. I had 23 sets of contestants, team players, fly in from literally all over the United States. It took the United States to get to 23. First week in January of 1992... Gave them a kit of parts which would fit in a shoebox. I gave them five pounds of garbage, gears, a few little motors, springs. Told them out of this stuff, you got to build a robot. You got six weeks to come back. We're going to play on a 10 by 10 little field. You're going to pick up tennis balls out of this thing in two minute rounds, double elimination tournament. We'll see who wins. Go find yourself a school, work with the kids. You don't have to have the kids build it any more than the kids have to play with Shaquille O'Neal. You, the companies, don't teach. Let the teachers teach. You've got to be inspirational. You've got to be a voice in our culture about something that's fun and cool and important to kids. They all leave. Six weeks later to the day, six weeks later, planes are flying in. They come to, in the middle of the winter, New Hampshire. This is commitment. We're in a high school gym. All day Friday, the elimination tournament's going on. Saturday, we have the final Saturday morning, and there's a winner. 
I walk into the, what was then the converted teacher's lounge where all the sponsors were there, these corporate guys, about six or seven of the CEOs of these Fortune 50 technology companies were there. And I said, what do you think? And I remember to this day, it was a sinking feeling. The first thing one of these CEOs said to me is, Dean, you lied to us. I don't lie to anybody. I make a lot of dumb mistakes. I screw things up. I don't lie to anybody. But he said, you lied to us. You said it would be nights and weekends for six weeks working with these kids. By the end of a week or two, it was pretty clear if we were going to turn this pile of garbage into anything that would work, it was going to be all night and it was going to be all weekend for a lot of our people. And, you know, I wasn't going to let HP or GE beat me. So I, and, oh, but one by one, they'd start to smile. And every one of them, literally every one of them said, Dean, what you didn't tell us was the kids would get more out of it than the adults. What you didn't tell us was our engineers were like, they remembered why they went to engineering school. You didn't tell us that we'd watch these kids change. They weren't building robots. They were building self-confidence. They were building serious relationships with adults, which doesn't happen very much in our culture. And they went on and on about what an incredibly fun, their, their engineers were becoming community heroes. So I had the upper hand. I said, okay, guys. And it was all guys. How many will you come back next year? If I do this again, I'll give you a bigger kit, a bigger challenge. 100% said they'd come back. As difficult as it was, as expensive as it was. I said, well, great. You're all big companies. You're all on the boards of other big companies. Bring your friends. So the growth of this thing, most companies would be very happy with. We had like 60 teams show up in January. New kit. They showed up again at the end of February. Competition. For five years, we kept doubling and redoubling. At the end of five years... It's quite a tradition now to this day. It still is. At the end of the fifth year, the beginning of the next year, I said at the January kickoff, look, people, we can't come back at the end of the season to compete because there's no venue left in the state of New Hampshire big enough to hold this. But don't worry. There's another big company that really does understand culture and entertainment and kids, and they've agreed to build us the Olympic Village of Technology to hold and host our event. It's a little company called Disney, and we're going to do it at Epcot. And for the next five years, we doubled and redoubled at Epcot, and each year they'd build us a custom stadium to do this. But also I said to them at the end of that, look, guys, we, we're following the sports model. This, in the sports model, you know, the kids can watch the Super Bowl, they can watch the World Series, and they can get all jazzed up. But if the only way they could ever get to try to develop the skill sets, to practice hour after hour, was all we have to do once we jazz them up is put them on an airplane, fly them to another city, put them in a hotel, and match them up with an NFL star. You know, that's not a scalable event. Now I said, by the fifth year, I said, I got most of the Fortune 500. You guys are doing that. You're taking the kids and their parents and the mentors, and the, you're flying them around. The most expensive part of this thing is hotels and travel. It's not scalable. Fortunately, the real valuable part is the time and energy of the real scientists and engineers that are working with these kids. But fortunately, not even your companies have figured out how to monetize that. They do it nights and weekends, and we're flying under the radar. So we just got to get rid of this cost. And if the real sports model works, simple. At the end of the six weeks, you're not going to Disney. First, you're going to have regional events. So all you big companies are going to find a location of your choice. You're going to get enough kits for all the midsize and small companies around They've got the scientists and engineers. They may not have the other resources. And we'll, they'll adopt all the other schools in your city and we'll have regional events. That way we can grow a lot faster, a lot more cost-effectively. And two of those big companies, one right around here, Johnson & Johnson, said, yeah, we'll do one in New Jersey. We'll do it at Rutgers. And Motorola said, yeah, we'll do one in Chicago. So we started the sixth year with two regionals, the seventh year with four regionals, the 
next year with eight regionals. We get to the 10th year, we have 17 cities holding regionals, March Madness, every weekend in March, three or four regionals per weekend. We give out the kits in the 11th year. I said, look, everybody, we got one more change. We're still doing regionals throughout March, but the finals we can't do at Disney because last year they built us an arena that holds 20,000 people just for the winning teams, and they can't double the size of that again. But I couldn't see limiting the growth of first because of that inconvenience. Besides, we're about sports, so in our 11th year, we broke with our five-year tradition at Disney, although we still use them for regionals, and we did our finals at a little place some of you have heard of called the Astrodome in Houston. And for the last five years now, we have uh, more fittingly done our finals uh, in a little place. Again, I'll keep reminding you, first is operating on the premise that in a free culture you get what you celebrate. The United States was thrilled, thrilled beyond belief to win the right to sponsor the 1996 Olympics for which we built the monument, the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. And by the way, I'm not against sports. I mean, I can't tell you. I am pretty sure that shot putters have dramatically changed my quality of life in ways that I will never, never know. (laughs) But anyway, um, we built uh, private money, not the Department of Education, thank God. We built the Georgia Dome, and it hosted the Olympics. I think what could be more fitting than the Georgia Dome should host a competition where humans compete in the unlimited class, thinking, uh, among all of our competitors. And for the last five years, uh, that's what we've done. We also, again, following the sports model, once we got these high school kids, and we're talking about inner city kids from all over the country, after they played three or four years in a high school, that doesn't seem like a lot to you people. We're all high inertia. Kids, you know, that's, that's a generation of high school. The younger brothers and sisters of these kids, even in these inner city schools, were so turned on by watching their sisters and their brothers do this that there was unbelievable demand, insistence, by the parents, by the people we say don't care. We need Little League. Well, I couldn't give them Little League, but I gave them Lego League. I went to Belund, Denmark, met with the CEO of what I'd say is the world's best engineering company, Lego. They give you these little things to build things, solve problems, and they have smart ones with the NXT brick. And I got there, Kel Christensen to fly over, come to Disney, look at this thing. And even though we started seven or eight years late because we needed literally, when he saw the scale of this and he saw the passion, I said, look, we got to build a much simpler kit that's really scalable that we can give to teachers. And we started many years later, but by this year, the Lego League is growing out of control. We have now a new middle school level which is halfway between Lego bricks and our unlimited class of FRC. Here's the real data. 1,600 high school teams, almost 1,700, 43 regionals, you know, little cities like yours, New York, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Jose, Cleveland, Seattle, Houston, Orlando, Atlanta, 9, 10, or 11 cities per weekend throughout March. We had March Madness. Lego League, we had 13,705 schools participating from 42 countries. And then, at least you think I'm a zealot of some kind, the Ford Foundation went and on their own nickel, or more like a few hundred thousand dollars of their money, paid Brandeis University, a third party, well-known, recognized for their social impact study capability. They paid them to go figure out whether FIRST really has a lasting impact on kids. Believe it or not, Ford didn't want to take it from me. I had gone to see them looking for support, and they said, we'll give you support. We're a public organization. We have to worry about donor dollars. We want real data. I didn't have a lot of data. This thing is a volunteer-driven organization. 
They spent four years collecting the data that they'll show here. I can give all of you that want to read it in detail a 90-page study, but when Brandeis finished it, I will take out, these are direct quotes, these are the bullet point executive summary quotes that we got out of uh, Brandeis, but compared to peer equivalents, whether they were inner-city schools with massive dropout rates, whether they were rural schools that didn't have science teachers, no matter what, they went and found and spent a lot of time and a lot of money finding peer equivalent groups near each other and found 50% more likely to attend college if they'd been on a first team, three times more likely to major in engineering. In the world of education, you get a paper if it's 3%. This is three times. This is 300%. Nine times more likely to do internships because they're doing what they see adults that they now know and admire do four times more likely to choose engineering as a career, two and a half times more likely to volunteer. Among women, 300% change in selecting technology careers. Among minorities, 150% change. By the way, I keep saying that we had adopted by all these corporate sponsors. Actually, in year one of those 23 teams, one was a university that adopted a local high school. It was WPI. had a little leverage there. I spent the best five years of my life as a freshman in that place. So, <laughs> so by the end of about five years, a few more universities started fielding teams, and then we started doing our regional events on a college campus. And then it suddenly occurred to me, why am I going to the pre- why? Wait a minute. The placement office, I'm bringing 50, 60 major companies to this thing. The recruiting office, I'm bringing 10,000 high school kids that are being turned on. So I went back to the universities and said, you can now field a team. You can put your name all over this thing, but you have to give us at least one full four-year scholarship for the privilege of doing that. Now think about this. We now have universities giving scholarships to scholars. It's a weird concept, but anything can happen in America. So the first year, the first year, we gave one scholarship, WPI, full four-year scholarship. They could pick from anybody on any one of the 23 teams. Two weeks ago at the finals in Atlanta, we handed out $11 million in scholarships from over 80 universities that field teams. There is hope. You just have to package things up and give people the opportunity to do the right thing. So this is this year's winner. Every year we identify one company or organization, Disney won it, that has done the most to support FIRST over the last year or two. And we, again, since we believe you get what you celebrate and I want more support, we celebrate some, something that we can brag about. This is the CEO of one of the largest engineering organizations in the country. He's the CEO of BAE. Over the years, they went from a couple of teams to a few more teams to finally this year over 100 teams. And in the last couple of years, this guy, Walt Havenstein, said, Dean, we are so desperate for more engineers, even compared to everybody else who's having trouble getting the best of the best, at least Google, the average age is now 24 or 25. He's running an aerospace company. His average engineer is 56 years old. He said, I'll run whole regionals. Let me support whole regionals. So like four of our 43 cities are sponsored and funded by these guys. Because of all he's done for us, because he agreed to join our board, we ended up announcing Founders Award winner for the year, Walt Havenstein, BAE. He walks onto the stage to collect the award. He's looking up at 72,000 seats, and he makes the following statement to the kids, which was so good I now have officially stolen it. He looks out and he says, I don't, we don't do this as philanthropy. We do this because we need you more than you need us. 
the reason I'm so excited to participate in this sport and the reason I hope all of you kids are so excited to participate in this sport is it's the only sport where every player can turn pro. I mean, the average kid has a way better shot at winning a state lottery than ever making a nickel playing basketball. There are two million jobs out there waiting for competent kids right now, even in our down economy. He made that statement, we stole it. Walt Havenstein. My final two slides. I couldn't resist. I have to show you this. Every year since he left office, which is after the first or second year, we always invite former President Bush, 41. Every year we invite uh, Bill Clinton, 42, who I saw a couple of weeks ago in Europe, and he actually committed he will be there next year. Um, but this year, for reasons that I really can't tell you, I get this note about a month before the finals from Bush, 41. Dean, I know you invite me every year. I'm going to be able to make it this year, which I just thought was great. And it would be exciting to kids to meet a former president. It would be exciting to our sponsors. I get this chilling feeling, 7 o'clock in the morning, Saturday, Friday had gone great. But Saturday, we're about to start the finals, the places as energized as you would be at the Super Bowl. We're ready to start the national anthem and then kick off the event. And I realize, as I'm sitting in the green room with the president, gee, he's like 83 now. It's been 15 years since he's done this. He might forget we're just a great sport. We're not like a sport. We're a sport. We're not a science. What if he goes out there with all this energy and embarrasses himself or us with reading some typical corny political stuff? So I'm sitting there with him. I say, Mr. President, remember? And he kind of, you know, he's still a very tall classic. Dean, don't worry. I remember first. Okay. We walk out. He gets up on the podium, but remember the last time he saw it, he was standing in the lobby of my building with the 23. He pulls out his notes, he puts them on the, and he says, you know, ladies and gentlemen and competitors, I'm happy to be here. He looks up, he's looking up at seven tiers of people in the Georgia Dome, and he goes, wow, <laughs> this is just like WWF. And the first thing that goes through my mind is, did he have to pick that sport? <laughs> and the second thing that goes through my mind is, does he really watch that kind of stuff? <laughs> and, but he, there's kind of a nervous laughter. And the guy goes, wow, it's like WWF, but for smart people. <laughs> and then the place, the house, not, well, he leaves, did a great job. I'm walking through the pits. I showed you the pit area. These kids are in tense. They're always making gifts for all our judges. They're bribing them with all this stuff and their <laughs> stories. And I don't think it's an hour since the president has left. The games are going on. I'm walking through the pit showing somebody that... And I go by one of the pit areas and somebody hands me this button. First, like WWF, but with smart people. George Herbert Walker Bush, team 1649. Well, I take a handful of these buttons. I send a couple to the president in my thank you note a week or two later and said, by the way, Mr. President, since that encapsulates, you know, we're a sport and it, it, it has some legs, uh, we'd like to officially offer you the job of chief marketing officer for first. <laughs> I get a very, very nice note back from the president. Dean, 
regrettably due to other commitments. I'm unable to accept the position of chief marketing officer, but I'm so proud to see how this thing has grown. You are welcome to use that phrase or my likeness or association with you and it anywhere, anytime you like. I can't wait to get sued by WWF. We need the PR. (laughs) Anyway, that brings me to, we don't need to go into every school. Just the schools where you care about the kids. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Can't get enough of SNC? Follow us on Twitter or find us on Facebook and let us help you find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to continue to bring you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our awesome events series and our website. For more information or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of our programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. We'll see you next week.